We're going to continue our series in Ecclesiastes today, uh, and we'll be in chapter 7, reading verses 1 through 24. So open up your Bibles if you have them with you. If not, the words will be here on the screen. Ecclesiastes 7, starting in verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the beginning of a thing, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for if anger lodges in the heart of fools, say not, Why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Pray with me. Almighty God, we humbly come before you and before your word, not over the top of it, assuming that we can understand or that we can interpret or shape it to mean what we want. But Lord, we sit under your word to be taught by it for our hearts and our minds to be instructed. We submit to you, Jesus, in all things that you would shape us by the power of your Holy Spirit and the power of your word. I ask that you would help my words to be edifying and aligned with your will. And if they're not, may they be ignored or quickly, quickly forgotten. We thank you for the blessing of your word, Father. Would you be with us now? Would you teach us? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So that's not a particularly fun passage. Um, when Anthony asked me to preach some more and said it might be on Ecclesiastes, I said, I need like four months to be ready for that. So it's been a while since I preached. Um, 
Actually, that didn't happen, but it could. It could happen. If you haven't been with us lately, uh, we've been for a number of weeks now in the book of Ecclesiastes looking at this guy, the preacher, as he's commonly called. A lot of people think that it might be Solomon. A lot of people think it's not Solomon. Uh, but it's important to, to mention and notice that this is someone who has a lot of wisdom, at least in human terms, has wealth, has status, has the ability to pursue in any human way that they can uh, the good life, meaning in life. So he's taken up throughout the book of Ecclesiastes these different things. We have riches and work and pleasure and all sorts of other things trying to find meaning in life. Or another way to say it is he's just trying to find something that's not meaningless. His familiar refrain of vanity reminds us that he's, he's looking for something deep. So if you don't like to go deep, Ecclesiastes is still for you, but it may not feel like it's for you. Um, he's, he's looking for this treasure of life, which will somehow satisfactorily uh, be able to respond to all the difficult questions of life. Um, this section in Ecclesiastes, as I, I've thought about it this week, this past week, uh, kind of made me think about the weather that we've experienced recently. You know, we've had uh, nights in the 30s. We've had days in the 70s. We had the prospect of some really nasty weather because of a hurricane coming all the way into the mountains. Uh, thankfully, that didn't quite pan out. Um, but it's just kind of all over the place. And so some of it might feel a little bit cold. Some of it might feel a little bit cloudy or confusing. But what I want to encourage you is that uh, is that through this, we are also being pointed to and moved towards something that is bright and actually quite warm. Um, if you have your Bible open in front of you, the heading uh, for this section probably says something like the contrast of wisdom and folly or uh, wisdom compared with foolishness. Um, and if you haven't experienced Ecclesiastes before, especially if you haven't taken a prolonged look at it, um, there's just a lot of treasure to be mined out of any one passage, and that will take some work. So we won't get all of it, but we'll work on some of it. Um, so what he's taking up here, he's taking up again riches and pleasure and work. He's taking up wisdom. That seems like a pretty good idea, right? Like, okay, you've seen all these other things, haven't really panned out in, in explaining the meaning of life or giving you something that's not ultimately meaningless. Uh, and he's touched on wisdom some earlier in the, in the book, uh, but he says, I'm going to take, take up wisdom and see if maybe that can convince me of what's ultimately good and true, give me some understanding in life. Um, but one of the things that we'll see is that wisdom, as far as you and I can attain it, is also going to fall short uh, in terms of soothing our existential anxieties or woes. And we're also going to see that in taking up a look at wisdom, contemplating things like sorrow and death are really important. Um, these things matter, and we're invited to, to ponder them, to consider them, to even embrace them, and, and try to understand what they're really telling us. So again, these are deep waters we're being invited into. Um, and contributing to the difficulty of the passage itself is, is like this proverbial language, right? So sometimes 
you know, especially if you're reading through the book of Proverbs, things are pretty straightforward, pretty easy to understand, pretty easy to get behind. Uh, one of my favorites is Proverbs 17:1. A dry morsel and quiet is better than feasting with strife. Parents, you don't have to be a parent, but that's one of my favorites. Like, yeah, let, like who can't get behind just like, let me eat some bread in peace. Okay, everybody can get behind this. Uh, the Proverbs here are not maybe quite as clear. Uh, so they're going to take some, some looking at and they're going to provoke questions for us, right? Is he saying that it's better to be sad than it is to be happy? Is he saying that it's better to be depressed than it is to be enlivened? Is he saying that death is better than life? If he's potentially saying any of that stuff, how in the world can I live that way? The kinds of things he's pointing to um, and has been pointing to throughout the book of Ecclesiastes are hard things. And you and I are, are basically left with two options. We can, uh, we can embrace those things or we can avoid those things. We can engage them or we can ignore them. We can embrace or avoid the truth about life. We can embrace or avoid the seriousness of life. We can embrace or avoid the ultimate beauty of life that may come through those difficult things. Uh, so, the hardest truth about life is that it's gonna come to an end, right? You've heard this, if you've been here for this series already, more times than you care to, you're gonna die. Death is real. Okay, uh, that's probably the hardest truth about life. Um, it's the most serious, it's um, maybe the least beautiful, uh, at least initially. Um, and right, what darkness and difficulty might the human race be able to, to better um, deal with were we only to know that our lives were gonna continue forever? I know that some of this can seem really gloomy. It is gloomy, maybe. Um, so I want to be really clear about something right here, though. And that is that, that nowhere in this passage, nowhere in the Bible, um, nowhere in the life of the Christian are we told that ultimately sorrow is better than joy or that ultimately death is a better alternative to life. Why, why do I bother saying this? Uh, you know, this, this stoicism, or nihilism or fatalism or whatever ism you want to put into it is not the word that we receive here from God. It's important to note this because when we're talking about sorrow and death, probably every one of us in that, this room has some touching point there. Some of us are much further into that than others. So if you are tempted to believe that uh, because of your raw and real and personal experience with sorrow or death or depression, maybe even right now, um, you're tempted to believe that, that somehow entering into the realm of, of death might be a better option than continuing in this dim existence that you've been experiencing. Let me uh, tell you, it is not. Your life is precious to the God who made you, and your life is precious to the people that are in this room. So that's not really a tangent, but that's a point I wanted to make for you. Um, 
So, of course, the preacher is not saying that death is really better than life. Uh, what he's saying is we ought to pay attention to death. He's also saying that death is, in a lot of ways, a better teacher than birth. David Gibson, in his book, Living Life Backward, writes that the coffin is a better preacher than the cot. The end of a thing gives a fuller picture, a more accurate portrayal of that thing than does its beginning, right? And we can see this in lots of pretty easy ways. Um, you see this through books, you see this through movies, you're left maybe lingering and also fulfilled, maybe with attention. Um, I know there are lots of, the, of fans of The Office in here, and there's some of you who don't like The Office. I really don't know how to help you. Um, some of you don't know what it is. That's okay, too. I'll give another example. But you have, uh, you, know, you have the finale, and everybody's sort of matured and grown up and married with kids. Even the, the lovable moron, Michael Scott, uh, who says something like, um, he says something like, I feel like all my kids grew up and married each other, and it's every person's dream. And if you don't get the irony of that, you just have to watch it and understand Michael Scott. Uh, go back a little bit further, maybe some of you watched you know, Seinfeld or something like that. In the finale, the four friends end up in jail because they were laughing at somebody while they were getting mugged or carjacked or something. And it's this image of like, you know what? These people aren't great, weren't great people. Like, I laughed a lot for whatever, eight, nine, ten seasons. And, but they were pretty awful people, and they kind of should be in jail, actually. <laughs> um, if none of that is refined enough for you, um, the classic uh, A Tale of Two Cities. At the end, uh, you know, one of the main characters is, uh, is Carton or Carton, I say Carton in my head because I'm American. Um, he, has, he has swapped place, swapped places uh, to, to be executed um, for Darnay. And he says, it is a far, far better thing that I do than I have ever done. It is a far, far better rest that I go to than I have ever known. That's a long and complicated story. But the end puts everything in, in perspective, sort of. The end of something uh, helps you to see what it is that's been going on for all of these seasons, for all of these years of your life. An effective ending brings forth all sorts of questions, all sorts of longings in our minds and in our hearts. Uh, whether we're contemplating our own death or the death of another person. Uh, but death does not for us indicate an end to all things, good or, or right or enjoyable. It is rather a, a banner. It is an ever-present reminder of what's important, of what life's all about. It is um, a looking ahead that reminds us. It is... Um, something that when observed, when, when I die, the people that I leave behind will observe my life for what it actually was, not what I might pretend it to be, uh, convince myself for it to be right now. 
So death is a banner. Death is a reminder. And it reminds us, again, of, of what's really important, people, relationships, uh, even the, you know, the cashier at Ingalls that's always in there when you go in there that time of day that you say hi to. Um, and it's a reminder of how we have actually lived our lives. The preacher says um, here in, in verse 2, that the living will lay it to heart. He says, the heart is made glad in pondering the end. So the significance of sorrow and death is that they have something to teach us. In the preacher's pursuit of wisdom, he realizes there is something for me to learn in considering these things. It requires wisdom to, to see that heartbreak and death can teach us something. And at the same time, in being taught that, we are made yet wiser. Looking intimately at what it's like to experience sorrow and death, again, David Gibson observes this. People who survive catastrophic loss often say that they survived by coming to see in time that they somehow had to take the loss into themselves and allow it to enlarge their heart so that their capacity to live well and to enjoy simple things and to know God intimately increase in a way they never thought possible. It is as if God somehow stretches a person to the breaking point and then she discovers that because she has been stretched, there is now room in her heart and her mind for God and for life and for others that was not there before. When you look at death, you are to be provoked. Whether you are walking through a cemetery I see people walking all the time at the Veterans Cemetery. Whether you're walking through a cemetery, uh, whether you find yourself in a funeral home for a visitation, uh, when we one day, some of us, find ourselves back in this very room mourning the loss of one of our brothers and sisters, uh, when we stand beside the coffin and realize when it hits us that this person is no longer here, we are provoked to remember that that will one day be us. That will one day be you and that will one day be me. Moses prays in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Moses also is provoking us. He's encouraging us to lay it to heart. In verse 13, we are told to consider We are told to consider the work of God. In, in pondering and considering sorrow and death with a view to wisdom, we are in fact considering the work of God. Do you see this? Wisdom causes us to think about and consider heavy things. And wisdom shows us that those heavy things are not our work. All of the things happening in your life are not your work. They are God's work. Death 
is the one great reminder that we are not as in control as we think we are. I'm familiar with the fact that I can't control everything. I know that. I've experienced it. My wife's probably trying not to smile if I look over there. But how much have I learned it? Knowing I can't control everything doesn't often keep me from trying to, does it? And some of you in this room have seen that strain of sin even in me. I have this line I've been telling myself for years. I don't know if I read it somewhere or somebody told me, hey, you should think about this. <laughs> but I just tell myself, give up the control you think you have. Give up the control you think you have. Easier said than done, right? <laughs> the, the wisdom, though, that we're being invited to here by the preacher is to embrace, is to embrace these limitations. One person commentating on this, uh, Derek Kidner, says that the mystery of what God sends, and especially the unpredictability of it, clip the wings of our self-sufficiency. What is the hardest thing for you about not being in control? What is the hardest thing for you about not being in control? I know a lot of you pretty well. I would guess that given time to consider the question, you would probably say something like not being able to fix the brokenness, not being able to, to accomplish healing for other people who are around me. Uh, you might be a mechanic uh, or have mechanical skills. You might be able to, to fix brakes that are not working on a vehicle. Uh, and that's great and useful. I can't do that. Uh, but can you fix the broken home of your coworker? You might be a doctor who can diagnose, who can stitch up a wound, but can you heal the years of mental or emotional suffering that have caused the patient in front of you to now be in physical distress? You might be a homemaker, spending countless hours caring for your family, filling their bellies with nourishment, filling your home with love. But what do you do that day that your own child, hurting, being hurt, feeling deeply the hurt for someone else, realizes how broken the world is. What are you going to do about that? The question in verse 13, who can make straight what God has made crooked? These things are God's work. They're not ours. The preacher exhorts us, remember that God has made the day of prosperity as well as the day of adversity. He exhorts us, be, uh, do not be overly righteous. Don't make yourself too wise. Don't be self-righteous. There's another way to say that. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. He's saying, don't be unrighteous either. Don't be self-righteous. Don't be unrighteous. He says, hold all things loosely. Because ultimately, 
God loses hold of nothing. So you and I are called in the darkness, in the days of adversity, as we are in the days of prosperity. We are called in the struggle. We are called in the feelings of inadequacy. We are called in loss. We are called when we are staring death in the face. We are called to view this whole spectrum of human experience with the knowledge of who God is and what God does. It's not about you and it's not about me. Thank goodness, right? Thank goodness. As he says here in verse 20, surely there is not a righteous person on earth who does good and never sins. A couple verses later, your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Thank goodness it's not my work and it's not up to me. If all of this is true, if the preacher is on to something, that in my best attempts at wisdom, I'm still going to die and be forgotten. If in my best attempts to procure knowledge and use it, I'm still not really in control of anything. And if I were to be given some sort of control over anything, I would only mess it up. What in the world am I supposed to do? This sounds pretty hopeless. It says, lay it to heart. Lay it to heart, my brother and my sister. Lay it to heart. You and I are the living who are supposed to lay it to heart. You cannot, for very long, be neither self-righteous nor unrighteous. That's a, that's a tough balance. You can not for long escape death. You can not for long hold on to any wisdom you might even hope to attain. But there is, there is good news, my friends. You are called to look at Jesus, who has taken on himself the weight of the world and the darkness of death. You and I will be pressed again today, this afternoon, tomorrow, for the rest of your lives, maybe, pressed to say, why? Why must things be so crooked? But the crookedness and the unpredictability of life are pointing to something. They are pointing to someone, and his name is Jesus. The cross is God's ultimately ultimate straightening out of all of the crooked things of our lives. Jesus, the son, beaten and spit upon, murdered on a cross. Paul will say in, in first, first Corinthians, this is folly to the world. They cannot believe that God Almighty, the creator, would be treated and killed subjected to such things. But he says, for you and I who are in Christ, this is the power and this is the wisdom of God, Jesus Christ, crucified and dead. Jesus has embraced 
and he has overcome darkness and death and sorrow. The sovereignty of God in this is not meant to leave us hopeless as we experience death and darkness, as we realize for the umpteenth time that I actually wasn't in control of that and I didn't actually know what I was doing. Rather, this sovereignty reminds us that there is something more coming. When you and I feel our lack of control, when we feel the weight of sorrow in our heads and in our hearts, when there appears to be no wisdom in this world that could establish meaning, we have this guarantee that Christ is risen. We have this guarantee, not just on Easter, but every day. So today, what what are we to do? What are you to do if you are racked by existential anxiety? If you can't seem to get your head or your heart out of that hole, consider Jesus. Consider the God who says of himself that he brings to life those things which are dead and into existence those things which did not exist. Maybe like the preacher, you've experimented with many different things, seeking that which just doesn't leave you feel like everything's actually meaningless. Look to the treasure and to the wisdom of the cross. I assure you there is nothing deeper. Hoping for an end to your sorrow, hoping for an end to the suffering of someone you love. Picture Jesus resurrected from the dead. We have hope and we have promise in him that your sorrow will one day be supplanted by joy and death overcome by life. These difficult things are but preparations. My friend, God is not trying to complicate things for you and I. I might be complicated, sorry. I might be complicating things for you. Sorry if I am. But this, I assure you, this is the Father freeing you. Be free, therefore, to, to experience sorrow and yet not let it put out the flame of joy in your life. Be free to fail. Be free to rejoice in Jesus, our righteousness, our wisdom, and our life. The Father would have you know that in Jesus Christ, all of this has been accomplished. If you don't know Jesus in this way, the invitation is forever open to you. But today is today. And if you feel that invitation today, do not harden your heart. Uh, just tell him. Just, if you haven't done this before, look, I'm not doing an altar call, but I'm, I'm telling you, all you have to do is say, Jesus, help me. I don't know how to get out of this hole. He has climbed out of the hole. He is filling in the hole for you. 
to hold you eternally in life with him. Let's pray. Father, we don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with all of the difficult things in life. We don't know what to do, how to attain such knowledge and wisdom that would free us. We cannot attain it. And so you sent your son Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Having created us, having called us, you have now redeemed us and you're sustaining us. Because we could not, we cannot do it on our own. I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, Jesus, you would move in the hearts and minds of all who are here. That you would encourage as the great encourager. That you would strengthen as the only strong one. That you would enliven us as the way and the truth and the life, Jesus. We thank you that you have given us the great wisdom of the cross, the likes of which we will find nowhere else. We ask that you would help us to go from this place full of joy that we may be sorrowful, inflamed and enlivened, that we may in some way still be depressed, that we would share your hope and your love with the world. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.